Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 26, Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world serves its own needs. Dummy, serve your own needs. Feed it up an ox, speak, grunt, no strength. The ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down. High fire in a fire, rivers in a seven games in a government for hire in a combat site. Let the West coming in a hurry with the furies breathing down your neck. Team my team reporters battle Trump, gather crop, look at that, no plane, fine, then, uh oh, overflow, population, common food, but it'll do. Save yourself, serve yourself, world, serve its own needs. Listen to your heart, bleed, dummy with the rapture and the rabbit in the right. Slice and burn, return, listen to yourself, churn Locking in uniform and foot burning blood Letting every motive escalate, automotive incinerate Light a candle, light a motor, step down, step down Watching heel crush, crush, uh-oh, this means no fear Cavalier, renegade, steer clear Tournament, a tournament, a tournament of lies Offer me solutions, offer me alternatives And I decline It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it
the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. It's the Welcome to Acquired Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether it's actually worthy of its reputation, whether it be good or bad. So here I am. I'm still in the midst of this flu. I hope I survive it or I might fall prey to it. The August to my Kirsten, I've got Tom with me, as always. Hey, how are you doing? I'm okay. I am okay. You know, I had a wonderful sort of uh, Me Too success story today because hmm. I went to go uh, to a shooting range. I just bought a gun for protection's sake because there have been some violent incidents outside of my apartment. So I went to go and to practice this because you don't want to be a fool with an armed weapon. And the man that was in charge of the, the range once you get inside it was a lovely, lovely human being. He was helping me. My gun was malfunctioning because it was so new. And at one point he was helping me with my stance and everything. And he asked, he asked, is it okay if I put my hand on your arm to like – Teach me how, you know, I, I, there should be like a pushing and pulling. And I thought, you know, that's all we need is for someone to ask permission. I was like, absolutely. And, you know, it wasn't untoward or anything. So mm-hmm. I just thought, yes, that's all we need. It made my day, frankly. So, so yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's been a good day. You know, I got <laughs> off of work and drove and went to go shoot at a fire range. And, and here I am talking about, I guess I should have gone to a knife throwing range because that's really <laughs> what they are used to in this particular future but no no knife tattoos for me yet how are you or <laughs> well i guess we can't date this really but yeah how are you <laughs> i was about to say because the holidays and things like that i'm doing well i just i'm just kind of in the midst of, of grading papers and and it, we we had some well we live in the same area so we had some snow recently that kind of threw us all off for the better part of like a lot of the previous week and like we're recording this right before the holiday break, and uh, it's been a very odd last couple of weeks because it's you know, there's like no routine to get down. But I, I seem to be, I seem to be all right. So just kind of you know your usual, just very tired toward the going into a break and bracing myself for like the last day or so, which tends to be a little bit, a little bit crazy. So, but yeah, no, I'm doing well. Yes, I think you are off more than I was off. Were you off Possibly. three days? Yeah, we got we were off like three days. Okay, yeah, and I was only off two because we're in the city, mm-hmm. so they, they I guess they get the job done better than the the rural areas. But yeah, I understand it. But yeah, it was nice uh, to see the snow falling. Anyways, it's it's always fun and and pretty. And I just sat there and read basically the entire mm-hmm. day. And and uh, yeah, so that's always nice. Cool. 
Well, this time we're doing a post-apocalyptic novel, and I guess this is our first one. I'm actually surprised that I'm the one to choose it because I felt Mm -hmm. like Tom's been on the edge of choosing a particular one for a couple episodes, but it's never, especially when he has the October specials, but it's Mm -hmm. never happened. So I was the one to pull the trigger this time. And so Station Eleven which is a rather recent title. I'm trying to think of what year here. Pretty 2014, 2014, according to yeah, the copy so rather, that I have. Yeah, rather recent. Yeah. So what's your history with this particular novel? I have to admit I had never heard of it until <laughs> uh, you you put it up as our choice. So um, so this is my history. I, I had not, not even like – not even on my radar at all. So This was also my history – so I had not, n- never heard of it at all. There's sort of a secret underground book club at my school. And I call it secret mm-hmm. and underground just because it's by word of mouth. And it involves like one particular student and then a couple, a couple teachers. And it's more like we give each other books. Mm-hmm. Or if I see that one person is reading it, I'll ask to borrow that. And... So this was something that had come up from my nemesis. I have several nemeses at school, but one of my nemeses, they're fake nemeses, nemeses, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but just I call her my nemesis anyway. She knows. So my nemesis said, oh, my goodness, you need to read Station Eleven and you'll like it on many levels. I really believe that you'll like it. And so my nemesis had read it and the uh, student in question had also read it and this is actually the the current copy that I have is actually from her so I, I do borrow mm-hmm. from the student as well. And I took a chance on it and I, sure enough I you know spoilers I very much enjoyed it. So my history is is just having that word of mouth and and trying out something new so i think the reason why she thought i was really going to like it was because of the comic book because she okay. you know she knows about that so yeah. i think it was that sort of layer there but i think there are other other reasons though but we seem to align very well my nemesis and i we both love uh the marvelous mrs Maisel and things like that mm-hmm. so, so that's that so my history is funny. also yours as well and I actually yeah. recommended it to my debbie downer of a department chair <laughs> who generally doesn't like I mean I'll come back and be like super excited about I don't know Tomb Raider or you know something like yeah. a, a film and then he'll be like oh it wasn't it wasn't that good at all and you can't you can't really have discussion because you get really excited about something and then he'll bring you down so it's like well I'll recommend I'll give this to him and he actually enjoyed it so that right there coming from him is that's that's got to be good we've got a winner on our hands so I didn't find too much about, I want to call her a Sinjin, but she's not. Her last name is Mandel. And it's funny because on her actual website and under the bio page, she says that uh, St. John is her middle name and the books go under M. So I wonder if there's ever a question from the librarians of, you know, where do we put her books? I can confirm that at, at least at the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Was it under M? Or it was under M. So they were doing Man- what they should. I'm looking at my hardcover copy from the Jefferson from the North Side branch of the Jefferson Madison Regional Library, and it was filed under fiction and Mandel. So gotcha. they listened to her. I, I'm glad. 
So on her website, said she was born and raised on Denman Island off the west coast of British Columbia, Canada. She left school at 18 to study contemporary dance at the School of Toronto Dance Theatre. So I think we're getting a sense of, you know, uh, art imitating life here. And lived briefly in Montreal before relocating to New York City. She is the author of four novels, most recently Station Eleven, of course, which was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn slash Faulkner Award, and won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Toronto Book Award, and the Morning News Tournament of Books, and has been translated into 31 languages, which is a feat for being only about three years old. Mm-hmm. A previous novel, The Singer's Gone, was the 2014 winner of the Prix Mystere de la Critique in France. Her short fiction and essays have been anthologized in numerous collections, including Best American Mystery Stories 2013. She's a staff writer for The Millions, and she lives in New York City with her husband and daughter. So there you go. That's a little bit about Emily Sinjin Mandel. I don't know if it's really Sinjin, but I want it to be. <laughs> I know you do. Is there anything you would like to say before I get started on this plot synopsis? Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> no, um, I uh, like I said, it was one of those novels I, I had never heard of, and it probably would not have crossed my path, save for the um, the fact that she recommended it. Um, I, I I will say that the title Station Eleven suggests something that was like different than what you would see than you end up, end up seeing in the novel, you know, it suggests some sort of like research lab or something like yeah. that or whatever. But, um, but that, that actually had no bearing on whether or not I liked the novel, but that was just kind of my thought going in when I only, all I heard was the title is, is it like, it was like a research station or yeah. something and, you know, or whatever. So and you don't even realize until like later on, you're like, wait, how does this come into play? Yeah. So it's yeah. very interesting. Okay, well, here is the plot synopsis, so hold on to your butts. While watching a production of King Lear at the Elgin Theater in Toronto, Jeevan watches as the actor playing Lear, Arthur Leander, has a heart attack. Since he has begun training as a paramedic, (laughs) oh, man, this guy's the the jack-of-all-trades once he learned Mm -hmm. all the things he did. Jeevan tries to resuscitate Arthur but is unsuccessful. Instead, he comforts one of the child actors in the production, Kirsten. After leaving the play, Jeevan goes for a walk in the snow and receives a call from one of his doctor friends. This friend warns him to get out of the city as a mysterious Georgian flu is spreading rapidly and will soon become a full-out epidemic. Jeevan loads up on supplies and goes to stay with his brother. We find out that many of the actors, actresses, and others that had gathered to mourn Arthur's death die within three weeks of the beginning epidemic. Twenty years later, Kirsten Raymond is part of a nomadic group of actors and musicians known as the Traveling Symphony. Kirsten, who was eight at the time of the play, can remember little of her life before year zero, but clings to a two-volume set of graphic novels given to her by Arthur before his death. I don't know. I sort of disagree with them being called uh, graphic novels, I suppose. I feel like they were just single issues because wasn't it supposed to be like a six-issue or 12-issue story? So that's bad on you, Wikipedia. So anyways... These issues. I don't read comics. I read graphic novels. Yeah, I know. These issues were given to her by Arthur before his death, called Doctor Eleven. The troupe operates on a two-year cycle orbiting around the Great Lakes region, and during this time, Kirsten scavenges abandoned homes looking for old tabloid magazines for traces of Arthur. 
After returning to a small town where they left their pregnant friend, Charlie, and her husband, Jeremy, the troop is disturbed to find that not only are their friends missing, but the town is under the control of the mysterious prophet, who rapes young girls that he claims as his wives. The troop quickly leaves and is determined to go off route to the Museum of Civilization, which is actually a former airport where they believe they might find their missing friends. However, en route, they discover a young stowaway who left the town as she was promised to the prophet as his bride. Shortly after, members of the troop begin to disappear until finally the entire troop is gone, leaving only Kirsten and her friend August. Frightened, they continue on to the museum, hoping to be reunited with others. Unbeknownst to Kirsten, the graphic novel Dr. Eleven was written by Arthur's first wife, Miranda. Fourteen years before the collapse of civilization, Miranda left an abusive relationship with an artist and married Arthur. However, as Arthur's fame hit its peak, Miranda realized he was having an affair with a blonde woman who would become his second wife, Elizabeth. The night that Miranda discovers the affair, she walks out of her home and asks the paparazzo outside if he has a cigarette. The paparazzo turns out to be Jeevan. Years later... When Jeevan is trying to reinvent himself as an entertainment journalist, Arthur gives him the exclusive that he is leaving Elizabeth and his young child to be with his co-star of his new movie, Lydia Marks. Jeevan reflects on this. <coughs> Jeevan... Re- <coughs> oh, my gosh. Do you have the Georgia flu? <coughs> oh, I told you. I was. Yeah, it's just yeah. been going on for way longer than I thought. Jeevan reflects on this while he and his brother Frank are locked in Frank's apartment waiting for the epidemic to run its course. After a while, they realize that no one is coming to save them. Frank, a paraplegic, commits suicide in order to allow his brother to move freely. Jeevan embarks on a journey south and eventually finds a new settlement where he marries and becomes (gasps) the town doctor. Meanwhile, back in the year zero, Clark, one of Arthur's friends, is the one who informs Elizabeth that Arthur is dead. Clark, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's son, Tyler, happen to be on the same flight from New York to Toronto to go to Arthur's funeral when it's redirected to the fictional Severn City Airport due to the epidemic. Clark ends up resettling in the airport post-pandemic and becomes the curator of the Museum of Civilization, where he gathers artifacts such as iPhones and laptops and explains to children born post-pandemic what they did. While most of the airport survivors manage to eke out an existence and cope with their new life, Elizabeth and Tyler grow increasingly religious and strange. Believing that the epidemic happened for a reason and spared those who were good, they finally leave in year two with a religious cult. Back in year 20, Kirsten and August meet a group of the prophet's men along with Saeed, one of the members of their troop. They manage to kill the man and free Saeed who informs them that one of their friends, Dieter, was killed and that the hostage that the prophet's men took to replace Dieter managed to escape and warn the troop, explaining how Kirsten and August were unable to find them. Frightened, Kirsten, August, and Saeed tried to hurry toward the Severn City Airport. Kirsten, however, is discovered by the prophet himself, whose dog, she realizes, has the same name as Dr. Eleven's in the Dr. Eleven comic. Just before the prophet, isn't her name Lulu? I think so. Just before the prophet is about to kill her, he speaks some lines that she recognizes from Dr. Eleven. She quotes them back to him, distracting him long enough that one of his younger sentries, who does not want to be part of his cult, shoots and kills the prophet before taking his own life. Kirsten and the rest continue on to the Museum of Civilization, where they are reunited with Charlie, Jeremy, and the rest of the troop. Clark, who has stayed at the museum for 20 years, realizes who Kirsten is, her attachment to Arthur, and that the prophet is the grown-up Tyler. Furthermore, he shows Kirsten from the watchtower of the airport that there is a town to the south that uses electricity. 
showing that civilization is beginning to take root again. Five weeks later, Kirsten leaves with the theater troupe for the South. She leaves one volume of Dr. Eleven with Clark, who begins, I'd say one issue, who begins Mm -hmm. to read it and recognizes a scene in the graphic novel that is borrowed from a dinner party, which he, Arthur, and Miranda once attended. Thus ends my coughing fit. (laughs) Oh, so the most important question, the one I always get nervous at is, of course, did you like it? I really like this. I I went in um, reading the reading the book cover, not book cover, the cover copy. You know, the, the inside flap copy, and seeing okay, this is like a post-apocalyptic thing. My experience with books like this has been stuff like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is kind of a similar bent. I mean, it's two people traveling on a road, in a, you know, in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. You know, other other books of the or or things of the zombie variety and things like that. I was like sucked in like right away. So I think I read this book maybe in a day or two. Oh, it just, you know, yeah, I was like, it was one of those, but first of all, read, break? maybe, maybe even a little earlier. I, I, uh, I've renewed it once only so that I could hold on to it for, uh, for this episode. Yeah. I was reading it over, um, over the course of, I think it, over a couple of days. I, I have a tendency to read in the morning, like after between, um, when I have to eat breakfast uh, before I have to eat breakfast and after I watch a little bit of the news and I'll read like a chapter or so, or whatever I'm reading And this, this flew, I mean, granted it's, it's a really well-paced book. So it, it reads quickly for as many characters as there are. Cause there are a number quite a number of characters in here. It's not hard to follow all of them and you're invested in all of them. And uh, so I really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely, and I very much enjoyed it as well, to my chagrin, because, you know, I wanted to stick it to my nemesis, but <laughs> she was right. She knew me well that it's, it's, a, it's a good novel. And I think I went in not expecting what I got, because when you read the back, it's all about Kirsten. You know, the back is all about Kirsten. Yeah. And, then, and this is going to be one of my questions, but then I was like, well, who's this Jeevan character, and where's Kirsten, you know, at the beginning? But, yeah, yeah I – yeah. We don't really, really get back to Jeevan for a while after we first see him because that was one of the questions I had at one point while I was reading the novels. Like, what happened to this Jeevan guy? You know, because like he was such a huge part of the very, very like the prologue to the book. But then we do get back to him. We do see a little bit of his backstory too. So, absolutely. Uh, okay, so we both liked it, which is good. So that's where yeah. we're starting off. So my first question is not even about this book necessarily, but mm-hmm. I just wondered how you felt it compared to, and, and maybe you just answered this in your little prequel mm. question, but how does this compare with other post-apocalyptic novels that you've read? I, I kind of answered it, but I have a little more of a specific answer for it. Um, I thought this was a really, really refreshing take on it because you you don't get a lot of... And then a lot of the things that whenever I think about like post-apocalyptic novels, you don't get a ton of details on what the apocalypse actually was in, in a lot of them, like the road McCarthy and the road just kind of hints around it, but he never feels the need to show it because I guess in his mind, it's not necessary. There's also no monsters like supernatural monsters. There's no, uh, this isn't like I am legend or, um, uh, the passage trilogy, I don't know if you're familiar with that by um, Justin Cronin, where uh, a secret government experiment is like turns humans into these like, you know, vampire, vampiric type of things. And they end up taking over the earth or whatever. Um, And uh, or it's not like the strain or like anything like that, where there's like some sort of monster. There's no big brother type of dictator coming to power here. 
there's I see echoes of Stephen King's The Stand in at least in 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 parts of this, but there is no Randall Flag type of character. There's no ultimate showdown between good and evil. It really is. There's no government official who's got like we don't get like the big picture either. Um, we we are seeing like ordinary people dealing with this situation, and I and it's something that um, the only other book series that I can really compare it to is a young adult book series that came out um, a few years ago, probably like a couple years before this. The first one came out. There are four books, and it. it's called the Life as We Knew It series by Susan Susan Beth Pfeffer, and um, the first one is called Life as We Knew It, and the premise is that an asteroid hits the moon or a piece of an asteroid hits the moon and shifts the moon's orbit closer to the earth. And this really screws things up. Like geologically, the tides come in like, you know, half of Manhattan goes under uh, water because, you know, just of all these things that mess up and it's essentially this huge environmental disaster. So it's told from the point of girl of the point of view of this teenage girl in like Pennsylvania or something, you know? So, um, and, and, uh, so that, that was the only really like comparison I have as far as a book I've already read. So this was, this was a really, really cool, refreshing take on it. And I think that's one of the reasons it's stuck with me. I think it's, for me, it's, it's the most expansive that I've read. I guess the, the only exception would be World War Z, mm-hmm. which yeah, had, that, you know, the interviewing that, yeah. and, and everything, but mm-hmm. you don't really get to know the interviewees at a personal level because they only have you know a short snippet whereas this one you keep coming back yeah. to several yeah, you get to know maybe characters. like you get to know maybe like two or three of the interviewees in world war city because they're like recurring over the course of the novel but for the most part you're right you get like they're like one-off stories but the scope of world war z is huge mm-hmm. as compared and to this as you said you know there's not a monster but there's there is an antagonist there and to, to mm-hmm. have a very human antagonist was interesting, but even with the road, you've got those cannibals at that yeah. one really scary scene. Yeah. So I think there are some similarities, but I felt like this was almost a lighter post-apocalyptic novel compared to other ones. I I don't know. I, I can't really necessarily say it was like hope-filled. I think it's at the end certainly one. there is, but I just don't know if like everything that happened was not dark, dark, dark. There, You know, there weren't deaths everywhere. There was some some thriller aspects and you're mm-hmm. it's suspenseful and everything, but I felt like it was a pretty level tone that, that yeah. didn't turn me off or anything, which is probably one of the reasons why it was easier to read. Yeah. There's a calmness to a lot of this too. That is, um, I guess ironic in some way because like the world's ending, but because it's told through the point of view of people who are essentially very ordinary in some way or another. I know Miranda at one point in the novel is like a big shipping magnate magnate or whatever. Because she 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 goes up and ends up being like somebody really really important, or just like basically a billionaire or millionaire, and I think she dies like at a at a like on an exotic beach or somewhere because it was the only place she would end, end up. But even then, you know, we never get that sort of urgent rush of the part. It's not like the movie, uh, the one with Gwyneth Paltrow, and Matt Damon, um, Contagion. You know, there's no rush to find the cure. Like none of that. It's just this. It's, it is, it, that's, I think also makes it a little frightening. This is the kind of the you and me handling it type of, of scenario rather than like, you know, Brad Pitt's going to save the world type of scenario. Oh, Brad Pitt. You're mm-hmm. right. You're right. It was him. Do you, so this is something that I was almost starting to get at, but I didn't want to fully answer it yet. 
Mm-hmm. Because Kirsten, again, is all over the back. When you get to know this, you're like, yeah. oh, well, we're going to be following uh, Kirsten Raymond around. But yeah. then you realize, mm, not, not not exactly. I mean, yes, but to, to not the whole time. So do you think that the novel has a main character, per se? I know Kirsten's probably the best candidate because she's all over the copy. Um, Jeevan definitely has his arc. Arthur, maybe, in a way, like in the background, because he's kind of the connective tissue to a lot of the different characters in the book. I mean, I don't think there's one main character or protagonist in the way that other novels have them. But maybe he being the connective tissue, there's at least something about him that he's like a focus or something. Yeah, and I would say there's not one main character. I think that the purpose of this novel is to be an ensemble novel. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the apocalypse is not going to just affect one person. It's going to affect more than one. And so I think it, it also does a good job of having these characters that have connections, more connections. I mean, what you have no idea until you read this, but how intertwined everything is and, and it's all interrelated and you, you sort of gasp. They're like, oh, wait, this is what that was. And then when you realize, oh, my gosh, Tyler is the prophet, that sort of thing. And it's almost like the, the way – well, I, I – I guess we'll we'll get to with the format. Uh, I I don't want to spoil that that thought, but mm-hmm. I think it's an ensemble book. I think there's not necessarily one main character. Kirsten could be the person you could throw out there, but because it starts with Jeevan and he's so heavily involved in the beginning, and it it all almost originates with him. Not saying he's patient zero, but it originates with him. I I think is a big push for him as well. But I think it's ensemble, and that's why it's yeah. And I think it's important just because of the type of novel. Yeah, yeah. So the format and organization is, it's its very much like a web. It goes back and forth between mm-hmm. just after the start of the flu, I would say, to maybe a year after the start of the flu, to before the flu, and also 20 years later. So these are our main time points. How do you think... It worked. Did did you enjoy how the format and organization was that it was nonlinear, basically the nonlinear storytelling? How do you think it helped or perhaps hindered this novel? I actually liked it quite a bit, mainly because the thing I was really happy to see, haha, was the apocalypse. Because, like I said, sometimes when you have post-apocalyptic things, the actual apocalypse gets skipped over in favor of what we're dealing with in the present. So to go back and to flash back to those moments where all of these people like had their arcs, so they became who they are now, I thought was really, really important. It's very, and I think Man- Mandel is an, is a television writer as well. I want to say that she was, I don't know if you said it in your bio or I read somewhere else, she was writing for the television show Millions. It or maybe I'm, say that, but I didn't know yeah. that, that was a television show. I think it's a uh, she's a staff writer for the Millions, so I don't know. Well, maybe maybe I'm th- maybe I thought it was a television show. I don't. Maybe it is not a television show. Anyway, it it has a television show feel, and I think that's because um, I don't know if you remember this. This show was on NBC, maybe uh, oh god, five or six years ago, maybe even more. It was called Revolution, and yeah. the premise was that all the power went out across. North America, the world or whatever. And now we're like 18 years after that day. And that had a premise of like this 18 or 19 year old girl was going to find something involving her father because like her, 
her fa, her uncle or something, and they all had some connection to the, uh, the actual truth behind it. So we did see the big power players in that world of the post-apocalyptic U.S., but they would always flash back to times before and times right after things had happened. Um, and it, it made me think of that. Um, that show kind of fell apart as it went along. Knowing, having come from that television series, and also knowing from like Lost and other shows like that, um, I could follow this really, really well. And I actually liked the jumping around because it was I found it easy to follow, and I didn't get very, very confused. And um, I liked the fact that it was nonlinear. You know, it was something a little bit different. I think I started to watch Revolution, but it reminded me too much of Hunger Games, especially mm. because the main female teenager. Had a bow and arrow. Well, it came out like I think it premiered just after at least the first yeah. or second Hunger Games movie, so that wasn't yeah. a, that wasn't a, a coincidence. But um, I think I got through like maybe the first half of the first season. Oh, okay. I I was tempted because my favorite lost character Juliet is in there. Mm-hmm. But I yeah, I like her. I like her a lot. She was the reason I watched that V remake for oh, for at least a few episodes yes. before I got bored. Of course. Yep. <laughs> For me, it's almost the format almost reflects the contagion itself because, you know, it starts off small and then starts to spread and and get wider and wider to, you know, more people. And so the book starts off just with this one point in history, which was Jeevan, of course. And then as you continue along, it keeps like spreading out both forward and past. So it almost very much represents what a, a plague, the Georgian flu or any plague would look like. So I, I think it works really well. I was able to keep up. I feel like she does a good job because that, that could be really tough. I mean, I, I think it would be easy to lose track of someone or to just do it too much or too in a too complicated manner that you've lost your audience. But I think yeah. that Mandel is able to, to keep us all together with her. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's see here. There was some, at the very beginning, there is an inscription, I guess you could say by Sesla Milos. It, it is from his, the separate notebooks. He is mm-hmm. a, a poet, I believe. The bright side of the planet moves toward darkness, and the cities are falling asleep each in its hour. And for me, now as then, it is too much. There is too much world. What do you? <laughs> so the big question mm-hmm. is, and you're the poetry guy, what does this mean? And why do you think Mandel chose to use this, Milos, Milos's little poem here, or piece of it, to introduce Station Eleven? I tried to do a little bit of background research on him, um, and this where is this quote exactly comes from? I couldn't necessarily find it was from a, from a larger work or a poem or, or the context which it comes from, but I do know that he was Polish. Uh, he died a few years ago. He was Polish. He was alive during the Second World War and during the Nazi occupation of Poland. He at one point was uh, living in, I want to say Warsaw, and attending underground uh, meetings in there of, of artists and other people who and uh, who were trying their best to figure out a way out of the country or resist or ever and anything. Um, I know that he was very critical of the the Soviet Union when they took you know when they when the Eastern Bloc uh, came came solidified after the Second World War and I know at one point he defected or escaped to uh, the Western 
world there was the United States or what. And this was just me just glancing at his profile on the Poetry Foundation website. I want to say the context of this is probably either World War II and Nazi Germany or the Cold War, the idea that there is there is a darkness on the horizon. You know, the you know, of, of all the, the pain and things in war, especially when you think about like uh, what came after the war in Eastern Europe and stuff. So it's um, that maybe that it is all overwhelming as far as the real world context, at least mm-hmm. that's, that's my, that's my at a glance take at it yeah. without doing very much research beyond skimming his bio on the poetry foundation. Site. I feel like a lot of it points to the comic itself. Like I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder, and this is a question we can talk about how, you know, the comic book sort of overlaps with, with the actual novel, but it just seems like something that you would get in Dr. Eleven and all that, especially just because of how science fictiony it is. Yeah. But, it's interesting because just, you know, the cities are falling asleep. It's almost as if, you know, the, the plague is hitting, they're shutting down. So there is very much a depression there. But then there's this almost irony there that as they're shutting down, there's too much going on. So he is, I think, very overwhelmed by uh, what's, you know, what's happening. And yeah. I don't. I'm trying to think of what potential. I mean, that's certainly like a Jeevan situation too, right? As everyone's mm-hmm. going crazy, he was very much overwhelmed and almost like comedically that scene where he's getting all those shopping carts. I didn't. I was like trying <laughs> to picture this how he was able to manage it, but yeah, yeah. I, I think sometimes you can suffocate by the world, like by things being almost too open, like just being in a void or you know, sp- like that could be too much. And so the fact that they don't have once they get to the point, they don't have the luxuries that they had. Um, maybe, maybe that's what the world is—is is too much. That one's the. That, awesome. I think that's the hardest line of of all four of those lines that were given. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why she chose to introduce state introduce Station Eleven as, or uh, unless she was kind of pointing out how there was a there was a peak, there was a pinnacle before the collapse, you know, and and what the what the virus did was eliminate the too much world because it's the only other virus that I can think of in, in our modern, not even our modern era. It's a hundred years ago. It was like that Spanish flu outbreak in the night in 1918, which killed millions, you know, in addition to the casualties in the first world war, 1918 was a very, very deadly year in world history. And, um, or you think of the go, you be back, go back to like the bubonic plague and that idea that, um, is it, is it nature kind of correcting a mistake, you know, like is, do you, I mean, if, if we're looking at that quote from the point of view of say like the prophet, you know, and that idea that, that him and his mother, as they kind of, you know, went down that, went down that particular, uh, that path were of the idea that this was all predetermined and, and this happened for a reason and the right people were saved or something. Whereas I think anybody with a science, more scientific or, or more just kind of rational mind would just say, well, no, these people were just – when you have any disease like this, there is going to be a – probably going to be a segment of the population that has either a natural immunity to it or is a carrier or something where they are not going to be affected. You know, We have major flu outbreaks all the time and not everybody gets the flu. Sure. So – and either people – like even very, very potent viruses such as like stomach viruses, not everybody gets when they have outbreaks of those. So the idea that this could wipe out most of the population on the planet and there would be people left over is very, very realistic. So, 
you know, I don't know. Maybe it's you're right. Maybe it is reducing that that there's just too much and there's too much to hold on to, and it it's just a, a precursor to what actually happens in the book. Yeah, and and as you think, you know, they're traveling, and they only really mm-hmm. stay in this one little circle uh, in the yeah. upper peninsula of Michigan, or, or I guess just Michigan itself. And mm-hmm. I feel like for Kirsten especially, she wants to see what else is out there. And so there's so much more. It's almost a frustration. Like there's there's too much world, and we can only stay here because it's we're trying to stay safe, basically. But there's something else out there. And aren't there mentions here and there, and they're recounting their travels of times they did go outside this sort of zone that they've been traveling in, and it didn't work out well? Yeah, because some of the, the areas are like the weird people that don't really want you in there. Mm-hmm. They don't like new people or anything, yeah. So they do. But but they're going to try it again. I mean, at the end of the novel is, is where yeah. we're led. Yeah. How do you, since we're both comic fans, how do you feel like the comic aspect of the novel worked with the uh, uh, events of the actual narrative? I I had a hard time answering this, actually. Um, I had to go back and try to remember like where it was. I remember the scene at the end where she, where, like, where the prophet quotes Dr. Levin and the dog, you know, like what you did in the recap. Um, so there's that connection. And it, it is definitely another piece of connective tissue that Arthur has to a number of these characters. Um, I'm curious as to what you think though, because I, like I said, I was having a hard time answering the question and remembering. So maybe your answer will jog my memory a little bit. I feel like the, not the comic book, if I were to read it would probably be like a Grant Morrison esque in that I might mm-hmm. not completely understand the comic because the, the portions that were actually in this novel were somewhat confusing. Like you really have to pay attention to this compared to uh-huh. everything else. I think that you you're not necessarily coasting. Like it's an even easy novel, but I think that there's a comfort there. But when you get to yeah. that, you really have to settle down and, and figure out what's going on. I think it's a lot about like isolationism, and because I feel like Doctor Eleven really reflects Miranda at the time, even when she's with Arthur. I think she feels really isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. And, it's just interesting how much time she puts into this and it never seems to be finished. And then, you know, trying to save the station, trying to save his mentor or, you know, having that connection with the mentor. Yeah. I feel like there are some connections uh, in the quote unquote real world out there. Um, mm. You know, if station, if the station is maybe the traveling circus and, and trying to protect your people or your care and concern for the people Maybe. I don't know. But it's, I think, beside, like, narrative-wise, I tried to find connections between what's happening in the comic versus what's happening with the traveling troupe. But I think for the most part, it's really the connections that this thing is just being, it's almost like one of those Hallmark films where this <laughs> item has been passed down and passed around to people and you see how it's affected people because yeah. it, that's really the, the connective tissue there is how it's able to connect all these people that are for the most part disparate. That's the right pronunciation, right? Disparate characters that would have no interaction with each other whatsoever without the, with the exception of Kirsten and Arthur. But then you're able to connect Kirsten with, Miranda and Tyler with Mer, you know, so it yeah. that's really the, it's more of a prop. It's more of a prop than I would say the narrative. But I feel like there's there's something there because even 
with Tyler, the prophet, quoting at the very end and, and having that connection there with Kirsten, and, and that's what throws him off and everything. And his almost religious zealotry is, it's almost the Bible mixed with Dr. Eleven, which is weird. So, yeah, that's something I'm trying to still suss out. Okay, yeah, because I know that he, I know that his, um, it's not like he reads the Dr. Eleven comic and all of a sudden he's preaching the gospel of Dr. Eleven. I mean, he, he is he is literally seen at one point reading um, passages from the Bible, if I if I recall yeah, correctly. Revelations. Revelations, yeah, which shocking. <laughs> with, with a post-apocalyptic novel and he's leading a cult. Cults love Revelations. Um, so he does, he, you know, his religious zealotry is grounded in a legitimate, bona fide religious text you know but yeah i i did i did pick up on that that he also is attached to dr levin and when we find out his real identity as tyler the son of you know arthur it, it does kind of add up and and of course it, there is a connection to clark and a couple of other characters in here so yeah i, I think the on the on that very basic level it is that connector tissue that arthur provides for a number of people in this novel but i'm like you i know there's probably something deeper here and if i were to reread it i may be able to find it yeah Yeah, so the quote he says is they're like about to shoot he says you think you kneel before a man but you kneel before the sunrise we this is page 302 if you're looking we are the light moving over the surface of the waters over the darkness of the undersea and then she um catches on to the undersea and then her finishing is that uh we long only to go home we dream of sunlight. We dream of walking on Earth. So it's almost as if, like, Doctor Eleven is in a post-apocalyptic world as well, like himself, and searching for mm-hmm. some sort of normalcy um, or you know hope out there. Just like the traveling troop is in this current state, and and they're looking to to continue on in their journey as well. I don't know. Yeah, she, she says we have been. She finishes it with we have been lost for so long. We long only for the world we were born into, and it does kind of reflect the quote at the beginning of the novel. Yes, the bright does. side of the planet moves toward yep. darkness. So there, there's a there's a parallel there, you know. So you're kind of bringing that in. You can kind of see, okay, there there's a connection there, even though you know. So I can I can see that. Any other thoughts on that one? No, not I. I think because um, he's about to shoot her when he does that. Yep. You know. So is that is that something? Is it? Is it a passage he provide? Is it his Ezekiel twenty five seventeen? Um, what, Please tell me you get that reference. No, I mean Pulp besides fiction? the biblical reference. Pulp Fiction. Okay. Sam, Sam Jackson's character. Okay, so Sam Jackson. What is the character, actual Bible quote? It's it's a the quote from the movie is longer than the actual um, Bible quote, but the quote from the movie is Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Yeah! 
the idea is that he will give that monologue anytime he's about to like execute somebody. Cause later in the movie, he, he had kind of, he kind of plays like overplays his hand. Like he kind of shows his hand with that when he's talking to Tim Roth and, 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 and cause he's about to give it up and stuff. So I was wondering, is this like, is this that in, or is this, or is there something deeper? Like, you know, this is, is this something he actually, um, that that Tyler actually believes. No, I well, oh, does he actually believe it? Yes. You know, is he like like believe also this a speech? Are you saying that is, Samuel L. Jackson doesn't believe that? He does, but it's a gimmick of his character. Okay. So is this a gimmick of the prophet? He believes these words, but this is the speech he always reserves for when he does this sort of execution like he's going to do. Uh, what do you think about Yeah, that? I think so or else he says it for a very monumental executions mm-hmm. <laughs> which kirsten certainly was in the traveling troop right because they made a mistake and yeah. they took that girl that was supposed to be his mm-hmm. bride to be so yeah, yeah I, I i think he absolutely believes them first and foremost and then and then he'll he'll use that whenever the occasions he's fit okay oh uh, well, my next question is about the sort of ordinary items that we see pop up. So yeah. we see comic books pop up, the paperweight, uh, you know, things that Arthur gave away before he died because he didn't want any more possessions. And then Clark's Museum of Civilization turns what we think of as mundane belongings into totems worthy of study. What point do you think Mendel is making about these various items? On a simple level, I think she is just making the case for the fact that we should preserve our culture as we go through and evolve through our culture because that's what we've done for other cultures that have died. There is literally a museum in Quebec City, in Quebec, Canada, because I was there last back in the early beginning of November called the Musée de Civilisation, which is the Museum of Civilization. And it is a very much like the Smithsonian's um, – like the Smithsonian, like uh, the Museum of American History, and, and and where there's a lot of you know historic there's historical artifacts, but there's a lot of like everyday objects uh, of some sort of importance or cultural significance that have been donated or collected into the museum over uh, over its time. And when I start to think back of ancient cultures that we have uh, dug up, studied, and preserved in some way, you know, your Egyptians, your Greeks, your Romans. A lot of what we have is very mundane stuff. Some of it is very like, you know, rich people stuff. Like um, if you ever get, if uh, listeners ever get the chance to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, they have a tremendous collection of Egyptian artifacts. And there's a lot of jewelry, for instance, and things that they took off mummies and tombs and things like that. Um, But like you go into like, you know, the Greeks and the Roman stuff and, and there's, you know, there's statues, there's, you know, whatever artwork, but there's also like pots, you know, like in and vases and, and, and things that there, in addition to things that were pieces of art, there are things that were of everyday use. And we, we, we find those things for Viking civilizations, native American civilizations and things like that. So maybe she's making a point about like, you know, when our civilization, when our culture has passed on, there should be, hopefully somebody will come along and collect the artifacts from our culture, you know, the television, the iPhone, the, you know, whatever it may be. I think it's also about we don't realize what we're going to miss until it's gone situation. Mm-hmm. And so it's yeah. interesting that they that you would equate it with 
ancient artifacts. You know, we, we look at them so highly and, and art, you know, Mona mm-hmm. Lisa or, or Statue of David, and we're equating iPhones with that, which is interesting. <laughs> and a connection to that, I think, is also those moments where Mandel takes time out and actually says like things, uh, I can't remember her phrasing, but it's like things that you no longer have now or we no longer have, and then goes through the different things that aren't possible anymore things like we missed Do you remember those pages yeah i vaguely about? remember yeah i remember okay what you're and then it goes through like oh there. internet or you yeah. know yeah using stuff like that yeah. so i think in in taking moments away you realize that uh, yeah how lucky we are with with all of these things that you know commodities that are, are making mm-hmm. our lives easy and so now look at what our past held and it's interesting now because the kids, the, they would only look at it with wonder, the ones that are born post-plague. Yeah. And really, they're getting on fine without it. So they can think about, oh, electricity, that would have been so easy. But they're just doing what else you know they're doing. So it's almost – it's hard, I think, for them to really connect with mm-hmm. um, you know the people who had actually experienced it. But that was uh, pretty interesting how it's turned in. The one guy was really funny, and this is funny, my department chair who – he asked, you know, how many F words are going to be in there? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. But he said the one was the funniest one that he had was when the guy went up to the counter to buy food or whatever and like lays his Amex down or his credit card. And he says, like, everyone chill the F out or something like that. And so that he said that was his favorite one. But <laughs> you also ask a question about the supermarket tabloids, tabloids yeah, yeah. that are about Arthur why do you think she has this fixation and does it go beyond a desire to connect with a past she only vaguely remembers? I think she's curious because her only method memory of Arthur is as this benevolent person, you know, this, cause you know, from the, that last night that he died, cause she has very few memories before the, um, before the, the fall. In fact, I don't think she has much of a memory of her actual parents, if I recall correctly, I can't remember if she actually like ever was reunited with her car, parents. I remember. So yeah. she has like vague memories and yeah. her mom wouldn't let her read that unauthorized biography of Arthur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think there's also like, I, I think she uh, maybe, maybe at the end she's, is she aware at the end of the prophet's true identity before he is killed? Um, Cause she never really know, like, you know, we don't even find out until later on. So, and, and, and I think he is shot before he could really say anything. So I don't know if, uh, if she really understands what the connection is between the two. So on the very least, I think in, for her, it's like a mystery to solve. It's not a complete preoccupation, but it is something else else to keep her occupied. That's, that's different than just uh, performing King Lear or something. So, and I know but maybe that's too simple of an answer. I, I don't, I don't know if there's a deeper, deeper something behind it yeah i i don't know i felt like it was surface level for me anyways that i i mm-hmm. think she felt very close to arthur and so she just wanted to have that connection to the past somehow and, and in an, a way that she could because i think you know her parents are not going to be in a tabloid and her brother's not going to be in the tabloid and it yeah. seems like of all the past memories because we know that kirsten has trouble with her memory that mm-hmm. Arthur is the one that's almost an anchor point of, of before the plague and, and to her after the plague. So I think it's just, you know, a nice little way to, I don't know. It's almost safe, too, because if you 
you won't go crazy if you're looking for something in particular. Like, isn't our, uh, August, doesn't he look for something in particular as well? Oh, no, I'm thinking of something else. I felt like there was somebody who looked for old instruments, but that's wrong. But I feel like August used to look for something as well. So it's almost mm-hmm. like a little hobby, you know, have something so that you're not going insane. And so she's able to look for these these tabloids and, and look through. And it's funny how many she actually finds. So I guess Arthur really was prolific. But I, I think yeah. she was close to him, and, and she, he meant something to her, and it's a nice little anchor point of something she can actually remember from the past. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Kirsten can't remember. And we are told several times throughout the novel that there's this year gap that she just can't remember and her brother I think tells her that maybe it's best that you don't remember it so there's sort of a negative miasma around it like you know something bad has happened what do you think because it's never explained are you okay with it never being explaining it I'll ask that as well as what do you think happened I think it's okay because it's through her it's through her eyes and Maybe somewhere down the line she'll realize it or she'll come to terms with it. I'm trying to remember what year it was, though. Yeah, I, I would imagine something traumatic. How It would be curious to see how she would deal with the revelation of what actually happened and whether or not she still has the memory from it if she's told what happened to her. Um, I don't think it would fit in this novel in particular, though. Like, we would have to see it... Um, maybe in a sequel novel or something like that. Like if they continued her story, perhaps that becomes the focus of part of her storyline in that. So I don't think it's like a dangling plot thread or anything. I think it's just a, um, a little bit more of her character and stuff. Um, so I'm actually finding it. I knew it okay. was in the interview with the man, the librarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is peppered kind of through the entire uh, It is. So page 195 is where we are. I'm just trying to figure out because she says, as far as I know, I don't actually – I actually don't remember that year at all. But it's when – I'm just trying to piece everything together here. The parents left. I think this is uh, – it must have been first year. She's saying that because their parents went to – Go do they? They never saw them again. So that she, they stayed at home together, her brother and her, and for mm-hmm. a little while, and then yeah. So the yeah, yeah the, the the prior um the prior interview is on page the prior part of the interview is on page one eighty four one eighty five because yeah. you know the interview takes place. Um, the interview was from year fifteen, so the interview was for five years prior to the present day of the novel. And then I'm I'm not telling you this; I'm telling our listeners this, and it's peppered throughout the book. So every once in a while, M- Mandel will come back to this interview between a reporter whose last name is Diallo and Kristen Kristen Raymond. So we get bits and pieces of it throughout the entire. Uh, it's almost like a like an interlude that we get every once in a while between events of the novel. And so the, on 184 and 85. They talk about uh, that last night when Arthur died. Yeah. She gives him the, the paperweight or whatever it is. Uh, the actress is calling her parents. They never came. Did they call her back? She couldn't reach them. I should say I don't really remember this next part, but my brother told me. And she called Peter, my brother, who was home that night. He said he didn't know where they were either, but she said she could bring me home or he'd look after me. He was much older, 15 or 16 at the time, so he looked after me a lot. Um, she never saw her parents again. I have friends with similar stories. People just vanished. Um, they were among the very first. Then if this was day one in Toronto, she said this, they must have been. I wonder sometimes what happened to them. Perhaps they got sick in their offices and went to the ER. It seems likely the most scenario. 
So you stayed home with your brother. She said, we didn't know what was happening for the first little while. Waiting seemed to make sense. And then we go to chapter 37, which is what you were reading. And, and the next part of the interview is, so when you left, you just kept walking with no destination in mind. As far as I know, I actually don't remember that year at all. So I think it's her first year, year on the one. road. Yeah. yeah. She's eight years old, it says. Like yeah. That. So it's very possible it was just very, very traumatic yeah. in a sense. And, and you don't you just kind of you don't remember how you got there just one day you just remember being in a certain place and probably the worst stuff happens at the very beginning mm-hmm. because people are just probably thinking that it'll all go back to normal mm-hmm. um and then once they realize it's not then they start to get a little more panicky and and i think that's when yeah. a lot of deaths happen i don't think that she I, don't, I doubt that she killed anybody i don't know if her brother did you know you don't really know what's happened to her but also but it's possible that she was attacked or yeah, something potentially too. yeah and i wonder do you think she was at all sick do you think she had a bit of this flu but it just didn't get worse maybe i don't know i don't know that's the thing they don't get a lot of into a lot of detail all we know about the virus is that it was very very potent and killed people very very quickly yeah. which for the uh, sake of plot is is convenient yet still realistic you mm-hmm. know flu is a very very potent vi- could be a very potent virus anyway yeah. and then the idea that if this was happening and this was happening very quickly that panic would set in quickly as well and people would start acting violent toward one another if they got in each other's way because they were trying to survive i could see things deteriorating Especially in like urban areas, like in heavily populated areas pretty quickly. Like, you know, if you think about it, it probably would, you know, it probably would deteriorate pretty quickly. So um, she was probably stuck in that. So maybe, and you're right, it it does, it it might take a while. I don't know how long to actually kind of settle itself down to where they're in a routine of how they know how to survive. Mm. Personally, I wish I I, I would like to know off Mm -hmm. panel land, you know, I don't like it. But yeah, I mean. It's fine. A little bit of mystery is not bad. So, uh, uh, like I said, I would I would love to visit off panel land in a separate story featuring this character, though. Sure. I don't think it's something that needs to be in the novel itself, though. Yeah, I get. Did you get that. my drift? Yep. Well, another person and his past is, of course, Jeevan, and Jeevan's mm-hmm. with his brother Frank to the end, uh, and Frank ends up. As I said in my plot synopsis, he ends up killing himself. I can't remember. The way he phrases it is is rather disturbing, actually, the way he does it because he's just like, you know, I'm not – once I go in there, I'm not coming out. It wasn't that. But the way he tells his brother is just with his, like, cold calmness that makes it even more disturbing. But you realize why he's doing it. So what what did you think of Jeevan helping Frank throughout the mm-hmm. the beginning of the – Georgian flu, and then Frank's eventual sacrifice, especially considering Jeevan's prior, or I guess not really prior career, but his current career at that time, which was the EMT. I assume that's what you meant. And then his no, future, no, the no? prior career is a paparazzo oh, as a total as a parasite. Oh, yeah. as a parasite. I, yeah, because I see this as almost I like see. a redemption. Okay, but at it's that like time pa- he was a. He was trained to become an EMT. Yeah, yeah. So he was kind of on his way toward toward fixing himself. But like his prior career, because we go back to his career as a paparazzo and we go back to his career as him trying to kind of reinvent himself as an entertainment journalist, which is like one slight step up from the paparazzi. Hey, a word we used last, <laughs> these kind of parasitic or sycophantic 
callback to last episode. Oh, um, those sycophants, yeah. Yeah, so kind of this, this, you know, they're they're not like I, I, I'm I'm being mean toward people who are in entertainment journalism and, and the paparazzi, but they do have a reputation that is not. You know, that is not as noble as, say, an EMT or a doctor or something. Um, and I don't know. I looked at it as, as Frank's sacrifice being like – because even said, didn't he Didn't he let himself – didn't Frank basically let himself go so that Jeevan could live? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because he can't push him around in a wheelchair. I think he realized that, unfortunately. So maybe Frank's kind of saying like, you've repaid your debt. Now go, hmm. you know, and, and live. And, and be a new person. You know, maybe it's a redemption arc that is the lighter, not lighter side as in comedy, but brighter, lighter, whiter side than, say, the darkness to which uh, Tyler and his mother succumb. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a shard of doc. I do think it is a redemption arc, though. That that it is, it is him rebuilding a life and becoming somebody in this new life, who is, um, who has more purpose. Sure. Well, I think that's what any of the apocalypse is. You can sort of remake yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. whatever way you so choose. I think a lot of times it cuts you down to your actual character, though. And so I think you know, Jeevan is actually a caregiver. I think w- mm-hmm. when we strip him away, because I, it didn't seem like he relished. The fact of, of being, uh, you know, paparazzo. I mean, you see you know. him with Miranda and he, he's giving mm-hmm. her something. Uh, of course, he's taking away something as well. But, you know, he's giving her the, the yeah. cigarette and everything. So there's that moment. There's like a virtue about him. Sure, yeah. And like a false virtue in the prophet. Hmm. I think that's what oh, I was going yeah. for. I can, that's I can see that, yeah. yeah. I like – I think Jeevan is – helping Frank altruistically. I think he loves his brother. I don't know that he's doing it, you know, in order to become some virtuous character. Like that's the first person he thinks about and he's calling. Mm-hmm. Um, I should actually say that that's one of the first people because I think that he does try his girlfriend a couple times with Frank. I think Frank's a realist, quite honestly. I mean, he seems like even yeah. in, in all of his little quotes it just seems like he tells it how it is. And so I think he realizes that, you know, being stuck up there is fine, but they're going to have to venture out at some point and it's just not going to work. And so mm-hmm. Jeevan is never going to be the person to d- dismiss him or abandon him. So I think he takes that decision out of his hand. Okay. So. I think, I think you're right too. I don't, th- I think you're right about his motivation too, that he genuinely cares about his brother. He's not doing this to score points, but, it's the either Frank or the universe's way of telling him like you have redeemed yourself in some way, or you've repaid a debt that you owed because of what you used the how superficial and how, you know, you used to be or something. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the prophet a little bit. <laughs> yes. Why do you think Tyler ultimately becomes a prophet of all the people uh, that we could have? I mean, why not have a random person, but it's Tyler. Why do you think he is the one to become the prophet and why does he do it? His mother gets wrapped up in it too, I remember. And um, the the question, one of the other questions you had prior to this, and I guess I can, I'm going to kind of fold them in, is uh, page sixty two. He, he talks about death. He says, "I'm not speaking of the tedious variation. There's the death of the body, and that's the soul. I saw my mother die twice." I wonder if it's a parallel to like the fact that Kristen, Kristen and the troop are keeping civilization alive through like the arts. 
and that like he feels the need to um, grasp onto something like religion because a number of civilizations have sprouted up around religion. If I'm thinking on a very, very big like anthropological picture, there's a power in what he is doing. Um, and I think he sees that perhaps he is channeling anger. Um, perhaps he was always like that. It was just a nature thing. I, I don't, it just, it, it's like, he said that weird first generation, cause he's very young, you know, when, when it happens, I think he's roughly Chris Kirsten. I almost said Kristen Kirsten's age or, um, or maybe a little bit younger than her when, when the plague hits, he's children are very susceptible to things. So if there is, I don't know, somehow he kind of gets molded and, and these things sort of, you know, happen as we, because it happens like really, really gradually too, Yeah, you know, as it happens. And, um, sometimes with those sorts of things, you don't always see like an origin point. You see like the end point, you, you actually go back, you see, you go back and the hindsight becomes 2020 to coin a, you know, to, to, to use a cliche. So I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out like what the motivation is aside from this desperation and, and maybe even anger that maybe his mother has more than, than him. And he just, he just becomes this, like she sees him as this sort of heaven sent prodigy or something. I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I'm, I'm kind of rambling. So what I do you feel think? like part of it has to do with those planes on the runway? Okay. Do you remember them? I the do. People inside. Yes, and they they wouldn't they um they essentially died in there from what I understand yeah, right yep which I don't know how no one was able to overpower the the people and, and get shoved out there or use the emergency exits but oh well so I think you're onto something saying you know about religion I think that people look for something to latch onto I think you know we need answers to things. It gives comfort to people, no, you know, no matter the religion. They like to to feel that there's something out there that's, you know, bigger than they are and perhaps offers explanations. So, you know, there's that ground point. Mm-hmm. His mother's, of course, an influence. And I think she slowly becomes unhinged. And I think because basically they sequester themselves, I think, in like the first class lounge. That's all he's hearing day in and day out. And so once he finally leaves and goes over to those planes, I think something lights up in him. Like, look at this situation. Why would this situation happen? And so I think one leap to the next, he realizes that there had to have been some sort of purpose for this and and goes from there. Now, why he the, – the problem for me is like the transition from him going there because I, I can absolutely get it to becoming yeah. someone that is this cult leader. I mean how can – I'm just trying to figure out – and it's almost like a very Jesus Christ-esque thing because you see him 12, 13, I don't know, 8, 9, and mm-hmm. then there's a gap. And you see him as an adult, which is, you know, Jesus, he saw him as a child. Last thing he saw was he was in the temple and his parents didn't realize he was gone. And then there's a gap and then you've got him yeah. as, and that, as and an that, older person. And that even varies depending on which book of the gospel you're reading, right? Because doesn't Mark start with, like, recruiting his disciples? I'm not sure if that's uh, where it starts. But I mean, like, John, for example. 
So yeah. yeah, skips the beat. And Luke is the one that's got the the birth story and everything. But yeah, even if you just if, if you don't look at the Gospels, that's all the information mm-hmm. we have is when he was yeah, younger yeah, and then when he the was whole older. Story. Yeah. So there's there's a gap there. So it's very similar with this prophet here. Is what the question is? You know, what? How did that happen? And I I don't know. I that's that that's the one that I sort of wonder. I think. People are on edge. Uh, they're unhinged, and they're also looking for something, and he can prey on that. Uh, but I think he has to get older in order to do that. So it's just his mom and him in the beginning, and as he grows older, he's able to do this. And then then he starts ruling with fear, and that's you know that's another transition point because you have this guy who's getting masses, but then he's also taking brides, and people are too scared to say anything about it. Some you know somehow. So it's whew. It's scary. It's scary how it all happens. But I think there are these gaps, and I, th- I think that those gaps are meant to be there. But I, I just wish you could sort of tell what the transition is. And I think that it just goes with this. There's mystery. There are mysteries in this book because you can't really tell. You can't really put your finger on human nature, especially when they're in this sort of pressure cooker situation. Yeah, she starts cracking up pretty early. I'm flipping through the book, and it's in chapter section chapter 43, which starts on page 242, at least in the edition that I have. At one point, like they talk about how they're stuck in the airport while everything is going down. Like they talk, they mention how like all the networks started shutting off, power starts to go, the food starts to run out, um, and at one point. Elizabeth and Clark are having a conversation about, she says, it doesn't make sense. Are we supposed to believe that civilization has just come to an end? And Mandel has her talk about, actually, she has her talk. She has Elizabeth talk about a book she read years ago in an airport. It was a vampire book, actually not her usual sort of thing, but a device she kept thinking of. The setup was post-apocalyptic, she said, so you naturally assumed as you were reading it that the world had ended, all of it, but then it became clear through an ingenious flash-forward device that it actually wasn't all of civilization that was lost. It was just North America, which had been placed under quarantine to keep the vampirism from spreading. That book is Justin Cronin's The Passage, which I mentioned at the top of the show. It's a trilogy of books now, but but that's the that is it starts off with like kind of things are ending, things are ending, and it jumps forward like a couple of decades, and all of a sudden it's like you know what's going on. We have kind of only only like a sm- small picture of what's happening and things like that. But she asks, like Clark says, I think I don't think this is a quarantine. I think there's actually really nothing out there. They talk about how there were like. But but she was unshakable in conviction. She says, everything happens for a reason. This will pass. Everything passes. And he couldn't bring him, himself to argue with her. And then um, they talk about, like, you know, just kind of everybody in the airport. She always insists on keeping a runway clear. So, like, there's this idea that she she is one of those people who is in denial of what is actually happening. And I think eventually she cracks or she... Or, or she, she, you know, um, I, I don't even know. I, I honestly don't even know if if, if it's cracking is the best uh, best way to to way to put it. The focus of it is mostly on Clark and kind of his backstory, but it is the the bits and pieces you get of Elizabeth and that she's holding out hope that another plane will land or or something will happen. That they're the only they're not the only ones left and that sort of stuff. And that slowly dies. But then, but then in chapter forty four, that's where Tyler is reading the Bible to the people inside, you know, Mm -hmm. of the plane. He's standing outside the plane. So 
that it happened for a reason or something. So yeah, it did. and then he becomes sadistic and possibly because there's nobody there to tell him otherwise. You know, like there's no moral. He doesn't have a moral compass because morality as it is is not there's nobody there to guide him in the morality. You know, like you or I when we're little kids going to church Sunday school or whatever, there is a teacher or a priest or pastor or whoever providing that guide through the morality that is instilled in the text that you're reading, you know, but left alone to your own devices and, and coming through formative years and, and, and being attached to certain parts of, of the book, I can see where you, it would, you would be able to warp it or it would be warped for you. Yeah. And I guess the, the fact that also he's using the Bible and because he's using mm-hmm. resol- revelations, it's probably seems like, oh my gosh, he's right. Look at what's happening because it's, it's, you know, closely following it. So I guess people are able to attach themselves more easily because yes, of course, what he says has come true. And so from that, he's able to, to, well, do whatever, I guess, tell more truths or even uh, feed in some lies as well because they're easier to believe. But yeah. She's also like I also noticed she's very, very blank when like when this starts to happen because Clark comes to her and says, you know, he's reading over there to the people on the plane in the plane. He's reading Revelation. Her reply is, Oh, he's a very advanced reader. Like and even says basically like the idea that I think um something about like the manicness of her the manic intensity of her first days here dissipated. The idea that she's just kind of like out. You know, she's gone and holding on to her son in a sense. And then she's that's when they leave soon after that. She says, we would just want to have a more spiritual life, my son and I. And that's when be out with nature when the cult comes by. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have to be careful, as the Bible has told us, you know, of the the false prophets that are to come because people are easily swayed. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, So just be on the lookout, people. So with the prophet, he dies. He gets killed by one of his own members who's sort of freaking out the entire time and then decides to do it and is brave enough to do that and then shoots himself, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you like is a weird word, but what do you think about the death of the prophet? Do you think that it was abrupt? Did it fit well? Or do you think we should have gotten a more climactic battle? At first glance, I was like, wow, that was really like, you know, all of a sudden he's dead and we're going to move on. But then I realized it it kind of fits the rest of the novel. Like this isn't this isn't the stand like he's not Randall Flagg and we're not we're not building up to two forces of good and evil facing off in a final battle of the apocalypse. You know, whether or not Kirsten dies, whether or not the prophet dies life civilization as it is things will go on without them they are they are the thing about this book that i really liked is that these people in the greatest scheme of things really are insignificant um at least you know none of them none of them started the virus none of them have the cure none of them are the government they are all people um who life will go on once they leave um, and they're just trying to find something to hold on to or there or whatever. So the idea that he is gone and she has to keep going or, or the people who were with him, they will, they will find another, they will find another prophet or they will dissipate and they will, they will 
go on their separate ways or some of them will die and and the theater troupe will move on. I think it really fits the tone and I really think it fits the pace of the novel. I think there was no setup for a huge fight. You knew there was going to be a confrontation, but it is not something on the order of like, you know, um, a, the showdown at the OK Corral or something like that. I, I guess I didn't need a showdown, but I wanted it to be more because I was really shocked when he was killed. I thought, surely this is not it. I mean, we're not going to kill off mm-hmm. Kirsten, but there's got to be something more. And I was just shocked, shocked, because we had been building this guy up little by little. You know, they went through, yeah. I think, a- another camp at one point and they had heard about him and then with the the suspicious behavior of the the people back there and that older woman you know wink wink nod nodding to Kirsten and then the bright like all of this stuff and then losing all the people there's all this bad stuff that was happening building up to this guy but you know he's not a super villain he is mm-hmm. just a villain but I wanted there to potentially be something more and I also wish that it would have been Kirsten to take him out but it's it's also interesting. I, I think it's very symbolic and, and powerful to have someone of his own clan take him out, someone who yeah. may not necessarily have bought into everything, but because of fear, there's that fear again, yeah. he didn't do anything, but he had that. He was finally able to take power into his own hands and, and get rid of him and potentially you know, put people on a better path. But uh, so it was abrupt for me. I felt like it was anticlimactic, but it was probably done in the way that it should have been done. Had Kirsten taken him out, it would have been a comic book. You know, it undermines the comic booky nature of it. I think you, you saying that he's not a supervillain is a great way to put it because he's quoting the face-off between the hero and the supervillain, right? Or, or something thereof, like when he's quoting it. This is this was from the first issue, a face-off between Dr. Eleven and an adversary from the undersea. So he's quoting a hero and villain face-off. Um but Mandel has gone to great lengths to make this seem like the real world and not a fictional comic book. Nothing against comic books. How dare you speak ill against comic books? But you know what I mean? Like it's it's not like she's going for a very like verite and like if this were if this were um, filmed like that cinema verite level of things that this is actually happening. We are actually seeing this is an actual world that actually exists. And that this could be our world right now as opposed to, you know, as opposed to the, the kind of the great standoffs in, 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 in of heroes and villains and, and, and things like that. So I think that, that having it come from somebody who, who finally gets up to the mustard to say, like, wait, this isn't right and kills him because he has a chance to kill him um, and just does it. And it's not a overly it's dramatic but it's not an oversold moment you know it says the shot was so loud that she felt the sound in her chest a thud by her heart the boy was in motion she wasn't dead the shot hadn't come from the prophet's rifle it just comes out of nowhere and then it's like he lifted the handgun to his mouth don't kristen said kirsten said no please but the boy closed his lips around the barrel and fired and then there's kind of a moment there and then they have to keep going so she is doing her best to paint that as a very realistic scene as best as she can without it turning into you're terminated <laughs> like you preach this you know or, or some some sort of like you know cliche action movie trope well you either are the hero or you see yourself live long enough to become the villain right <laughs> well as we move to the end let's talk about the ending of this novel sure. what do you think the traveling symphony will encounter what will they find 
when they reach the brightly lit town to the south. I had written down, because I took notes, um, I had written down the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I wrote down the good would be a community that is actually getting back on its feet or a place to rest where there really is no danger, like a safe haven. The bad, another cult, (laughs) Uh, some sort of dystopian society, something on the level of – I'm not really – I have never really watched or read The Walking Dead beyond – I read the first two Walking Dead trades – it was all right, but I was like, eh, you know, I wasn't really that into it. And not bad. I just never really got into it. The same thing with the series. But I do know of, like, people like Megan and the governor, I think, was another character yeah. that was in, like, right. so maybe something like that where there's, like, something run by somebody who's, like, kind of like a dictator type of thing. Or uh, the ugly being, like, more death, more plague or something. Like, you know, it's just, just a, a hornet's nest of, of everything that could possibly bad that could possibly happen to them. So it could be any one of those things. And I like the fact that it is the great unknown. Mm, yeah. I imagine anyone with electricity, and I don't know how many there are around this particular world. I think they're going to be very protective about their electricity. And so mm-hmm. I'm fearful that it's just going to be a hard society to move into. I think they'd be very distrustful of outsiders. So, you know, we get a taste of what some of the towns and communities looked like when they didn't trust our traveling troop. So I think there might be something to that here, but to a greater extent. Because they're a traveling troop, I think they can still get in more easily and yeah. because they've got a purpose, they've got a job. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, do they want to keep traveling or do they – want to stay there. So I think they'll go and but I think they'll also see maybe more suspicious looks. I don't know if anyone's going to be super friendly because they have electricity and everything. But uh, I imagine that they don't stay there. I feel, you know, they're the traveling troop. So I think they're going to move around, but maybe they can make that their little home base and and potentially get some relationships. But I think you're right. You know, every time I watch The Walking Dead, I read the first what was it called it's not an omnibus over there but i can't remember a compendium maybe and it just got really dark which you know the show (laughs) does too but for some reason the comic just really got to me so i couldn't do it anymore but every time they find a place you know alexandria or yeah the governor you know it's great for a little bit and then it, it turns really bad so i imagine that nothing is is going to turn out to be consistently good for a long time. But I, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that because of how excited Kirsten was that it won't be a terrible situation. Yeah, I, I was hopeful for the end as well. Something that, that and, and I don't think, I don't know if World War Z really got into the weeds on this either. I want to know what makes the power go out in a, in a, the collapse civilization like this. Like, isn't there a significant amount of our, like my power would go out if I stop paying the bill <laughs> or in a natural disaster, right? You know, like there's a, there's a, a, a tornado or a snowstorm or a hurricane or something and it knocks out power lines, or whatever. But how much of how our electricity is run is automated and the people working at the power plants and power stations are essentially just doing upkeep. And how long does that have to go before it finally shuts itself down? I don't think this is something she needed to explain. I think I'm just a little more curious about it, you know, and I think for the purposes of her plot, you know, at some point in the 20 years between day one and where we are, 
things just shut like all power shut down because things had collapsed to that point. But I'm just always curious. It's like, you know, isn't there a lot that's run on its own and we could kind of leave and it would still go for at least a while. I'm just kind of curious. It's like how long that would happen for without, without, you know, without a natural disaster or something. So they've got to probably be somewhere like by a dam or something. Yeah. Because they have to be the ones that are, running it yeah yeah how are they getting the power too so i'm kind of curious about like all that but again there, she is not obligated to get into the house and why's of that that's me being that's me being the the beyond the panels outside the panels sure. uh comic nerd that i am like yeah. you know how does this world work you know that sort of thing i don't know well no man's land mm-hmm. superman had to get one of the power things set up with his little engineering buddy mm-hmm uh, okay, well, the end of the novel is pretty open. It's got an opening into the future. Do you think that it sufficiently wraps up what needs to be wrapped up? Or do you think that maybe there were areas where Mandel could have expanded on those areas before uh, she ended it? I think it had to end with the confrontation, or but before the ending, the confrontation between the prophet and Kirsten had to happen. Um, either with somebody's death or with a defeat or something like in some way, there was no way these two were never going to cross paths. And if they hadn't, I think we would have been, um, disappointed. So that certainly, I think wraps that up satisfactorily for me. Um, I like the fact that she leaves things open-ended as well, that there's more to this. And I'm like, I want you to write another book because I want to see what, even if it's not like this group of people like if it's like another group of people somewhere else in this world and you know what happened to them like it's just this this world that she has created is fascinating to me so um i think i like the way the novel ended but i definitely think there's a lot to expand upon much to the detriment of this book i just think there's a greater world to explore yeah and i think especially because i think it does a good job it's not the type of book that is going to end up with a neat little bow attached at the end, like the end, because it's not going to be. The world goes on, right? The world yeah, is yeah, too yeah. much. There's too much world or whatever Milos says. And, but the one I'm disappointed in is Jeevan because you there's so much of a gap between the second to last, the penultimate time that you see him and the ultimate time mm-hmm. that you see him that you – or perhaps not, but the let's say there's so much of a gap between him leaving Frank, that's the time that they talk about him and you see him, versus yeah. now he's a doctor, he's in a camp somewhere on the East Coast, southish, and then he has a wife and child. And yeah. you, I really wanted him, because so much of a connection, because she wanted to also... She didn't remember his name, but just she thought about him, about Jeevan. And so I thought, oh, well, surely there's going to be some sort of thing, but there's not. It's Clark and her that have that connection at the end. So that's mm-hmm. the only one I'm disappointed in. Like, how did he get there? What's his story there? You know, does he – I think there's a mention of him thinking about that little girl. But, I mean, is that fine that they had such a, this strong connection at the very beginning of the novel, but they just never get back to it? It sort of, you know, dwindles out. Yeah, I agree with you. I would like to see more of the time between that because I know he's got like a wife and kid yep. at the end. And like, where did that come bread. from? And I'm, I mean, I'm glad that I like the fact that he had a happy ending. 
you know, like and he's stuck with one profession. Yeah, like I, I like I like seeing that, but I, I, I am curious. It's like, what where, where's the rest of that story? And maybe it was kind of like abandoned a little bit for the sake of the prophet and and Kirsten and everything. Maybe she had a little too much going on that she had to. Um, maybe she had an idea, or it was never there, or was an idea, but she had to abandon it in a draft because it was just um, taking up too much space as she was going toward the climax of the novel or something. So, yeah. but I agree with you. So then final question is actually about the end. So it ends with Clark, of all people. Mm-hmm. He remembers the dinner party. He imagines that somewhere in the world ships are sailing. So why do you think the author, Mandel, or Mandel chooses to end her novel with Clark? I don't know. Well, I, I okay. I know. I think I know why he she chooses to end it with Clark because Clark is the keeper of the Museum of Civilization at this point. He took it over from the person who used to run it. He's a connection between the old and the new because he has a lot of memories of the world of the old and the world of the new. Um, so that that's there. The whole thing about the ships sailing, I think it's again maybe that image of hope that there's something out there. Because he also kind of well, no, he Elizabeth was kind of hopeful there was something out there, so maybe he is getting more hopeful now, and and what have you. What do you think? I yeah, I agree with you. I think he is. If you had one of those home, have you ever seen Homeland? No, I have okay. not. Okay, well, I can probably reference something else. But you know, conspiracy theorist walls, and if you see any like I don't know, cop procedural, if it's really intense investigation, they've got you know strings leading from one thing mm. to the next. I feel like you could put Clark in the center, and he would connect to everybody, and he would have the ability to connect everybody to everybody else, and he's the only one that can do that. And so I think it's good for him. He's almost the linchpin, right? It's like mm-hmm. the six degrees to Kevin Bacon or whatever that weird thing is. And yeah. so it's six degrees to Clark. So I think it, it makes sense for, for him to be the end. The only other person I could possibly see is Arthur, but I don't really know where else his story could go because it wasn't really the most uplifting story. And, you know, we started – it mm-hmm. could have been Jeevan, I suppose. Yeah. But I think Clark is, is the way to go. And you're right about the civilization too. He's the keeper of it. And, yeah, he's almost the, the last – what what do they call them? Last vanguard or whatever? Where, yeah, the, where, where that yeah. person goes, you sort of have lost all ties to the, to the past yeah. and, and what that means. I am going to go out on a limb here <gasps> that, do that the end of the novel, the very last si- sentence, sure. is a literary allusion to the great Gatsby. Oh, my gosh. Here's why. The last sentence of the novel is he likes this thought of ships moving over the water toward another world just out of sight. The last line of The Great Gatsby is, so we beat on boats against the current born ceaselessly, born back ceaselessly into the past. Because like, it reminded me of Fitzgerald and I was like, wait a second. And so maybe maybe she was – and you know, she is – She's a literary writer. I mean, maybe, maybe she is. Maybe she is making a slight uh, allusion to uh, Fitzgerald. Maybe. What was? What's the? Who's writing that? Is that Nick's perspective at the end? It's Nick's the narrator. So, it it starts off the end of it, and I, I'm pulling it from WikiCode because my my copy's upstairs. It earlier in the paragraph it says Gatsby group believed in the green light, the orgiastic future or orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine day and then one fine morning. So we beat on boats against the current born back ceaselessly into the past. 
So, and I think there's something missing. Like I said, I grabbed it off WikiQuote, so I think I, there might be something missing from there. But that idea of the, the future that recedes before us, and it, kind of in here where he's saying, um, you know, thinking about sailing and that there's something out there, that there's something of the future and hope for the future and the image. That image recalled the great Gatsby to me. Okay. So. And I, I will only say that it's almost his hope in the past, though. I don't know if... Mm-hmm. Because yeah, for Gatsby, Gatsby, absolutely, I think the future. But for Clark, he's remembering some, like a happy time in the past, potentially. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, though, they talk about sailboats because the big thing before, I think, was the airplane. And the fact, not just because they're at the airport, but just I think there were other characters, too, that wondered, you know, will they ever see an airplane or something like that in the sky ever again? Or, you know, when the last one went yeah. off, they're like, oh, that was the last time we've ever saw an airplane. So it's just interesting. They go to ships, which connects to Miranda and her little thing. Yeah. As well, too. Yeah. And he thinks shipping is the image that he, the, the last sentence before that last paragraph is is about Miranda. And he says she went into shipping, he remembers. So. Yeah. Um, and not the type of shipping that you do. Oh, I know. Um, Thanks for clarifying. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, final fun question. If you well, were. Bef- oh, yeah. Before that. Oh, wait. Is Are you going to ask question L? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were going in. I thought you were going into the would you recommend it would you teach no. it. So final fun question. If you were in this situation. What do you think you would remember most? Because, you know, some people throughout, you know, Mandel has these these moments where she just pulls off from all the characters and said, you know, things that we don't have anymore. And so and goes through that. So what would you miss most? Interrupting my co-host in the way that like when she's trying to finish her sentence because I can't bring it my up. Mouth I shut, easily which edited is something, it, now which is something a... my which is something my wife like Uh-oh. which I do way too many times and my wife like will always just like be like, please stop doing that and let me finish <laughs> Okay, my real answer. I, I thought about this. I actually thought about this a lot because, like, you know, I, I thought about, like, what objects I would miss and things like this. Sort of, like, if you had a fire, what if there was a fire, like, what one thing could you save type of question. Yeah. But I think if, if I think of the broader scope, I think I would miss the buzz of civilization around us, the buzz of the city, the buzz of the suburbs, you know, planes flying overhead, trains out in the distance, hearing cars on the road. Like if I were to open up my window right now, I could hear well, – I'm not very far from Route 29. So I could hear the cars on and trucks on 29 going up and down the road. And I live really about a mile, mile and a half away from Charlottesville Albemarle Airport. So I get a lot of like, you know, the planes coming in and things like that. And every once in a while, you do hear a train off in the distance. I grew up not – I didn't grow up near railroad tracks, but I grew up a, a, a close enough that I could hear the – the Long Island Railroad trains in the distance um, and and things like that. So that idea of that ambient noise of civilization when everything has gone, you know, when all the air conditioners shut down and when all the buzzing stops and you are left with the a- ambient noise of, of what is nature. Um, I think I would, I, I think it would be a weird adjustment, but it would be something that I would miss or try to recall or think of because the way the world sounds is now different. Wow. You know, I always enjoy it when the power goes off at school and it's like dead silent. I like um, it. I mean, but the it, students don't act like a bunch of howler monkeys. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, they're freaked out. They're freaked out. And then, Yeah. And also, it's interesting of how loud it is at what I teach 13 year olds. So it's like screaming all the time. But oftentimes when I come home, I have this like this ringing in my ear 
because I'm in silence now, so it's almost as if my ears are trying to compensate and like come back down because now they're devoid of that noise. So it's funny that you mentioned that. I would miss, let me think here. You know, elect- electronics, take it or leave it, frankly. I think we're too tied to it. I'm sure, you know, we tell our kids that all the time, but I really do believe that we're too tied to it. I think I would miss books. I think that it would be, I mean, you're trying to do your survival thing, so I don't know if going out and looking for books would be the most natural and perhaps safest or mm, common sense (laughs) thing that you should be doing. If you find a good place to hole up maybe on your travels, go out and find them, but just the ease of access of, of getting books and the fact that no more books would be created. So... I guess creativity would be dead. Uh, Potential, you know, things like that. And just the fact that civilization or culture almost stops at at a certain point because I don't know that people would still be creating. They're just trying to survive. So I think I would miss the arts, I guess. I'll I'll do that as a whole. I agree. I think I would miss that as well. I'm I'm one of those people who's the same way, who is like, I think I feel feel very strongly about the need for, for art. Because I think it is what makes us human. Absolutely. You know, that, that work not does not. animals. Okay, so now you can ask your question you were going to ask. Well, well, it was, no, the question I thought you were going to ask. Oh. Which is the question so we always ask. you interrupted me to ask the question that I was going to ask before you interrupted me? No, I interrupted you because I thought you were skipping the question you just asked me. Interesting. Interesting. I made assumptions. <laughs> you know what they say about that? Yes, I do, and okay. I certainly did, oh, at least out of me. Oh, no. Well, now I can ask the actual question of whether you would recommend this, and should it apply, would you teach it? I would definitely recommend this. Um, I think I would recommend this even to some of my students who are uh, a little bit older, like in my AP class, um, like just to, just for a, just for a good read. I could probably throw this into as one of a choice if you're doing like a, like this type of literature, this type of science fiction or or apocalyptic literature or, or dystopian literature. And that's it's actually not really that dystopian compared to like, you know, 84 Fahrenheit or whatever. But um, I could probably find a place on an independent reading list, but I definitely would recommend it. And I would recommend it as well. I think it would work. I can't teach a lot of these things, which is why I – I, I sort of avoid the teaching question because a lot of these books, I've realized I can't really teach it given my subject matter. But at my school, they actually do do The Road in senior year, I think. Oh, cool. Ooh, I think so. And so it'd be this would be an interesting pair, something to yeah. pair it with. Just different aspect of, of post-apocalyptic fiction. So yeah. there you go. But absolutely, I, I think give this a read, people. So hopefully my nemesis, yeah. Robert Ward, <laughs> likes this book. Yeah. Speaking of Robert Ward, we oh have a- my gosh! Don't even say his name to me. But 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 that was a segue. That was a skillful segue. Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, I will say though, you did mention uh, the question, and we are kind of tweaking that question a little bit because I did we did come to realize it, mostly in the middle of the Doll's House episode that um, the question "Would you teach it?" really does mostly apply to me being the English teacher. Um, and now, if we were covering, say the odyssey or the aeneid or, or like a classic yeah, text like in the, in the what would fall under the classics department greco-roman type of stuff that i think that that's Hopefully. where you would have a little bit more so 
we are going to change that to more of a will you recommend it, you know, yeah. but or I would think you read it again too. We could, or would you read it again? Yeah. Um, but with the teaching it, I think we could still use that to apply to the, to the classics, the classic literature and the things that are commonly taught. And even if, if Stella can't answer, I, it's something that I think of when I choose something on, if, if I were to choose something on the order of Gatsby, Mockingbird, Something that you would normally encounter in like a high school or junior high school, middle school curriculum. So for something like this, which is fairly new, I don't think, you know, unless we have something like, hey, yeah, this would work really into it. We're not going to really get deep into the pedagogical <laughs> aspects of, of, uh, of, of teaching this novel. But I think if, if we were calling into question like a Shakespeare play or something and saying, you know what, maybe we don't need to teach Romeo and Juliet. Maybe we could do something you else. Wish. I think that's where that would apply. So we're just kind of changing, slight change in the format, but we're still like really deciding whether or not this is really worth the read. But I will get into Robert's email. He says, this is about atonement. So he says, uh, no matter how badly I'm feeling, I'm always excited to find a new episode on the feed or read along with the latest choice. Sometimes the book choice is brilliant, but sometimes the book isn't. Regardless, I find it a joy to dig in where I could... Where I would never have ventured. I don't know if you personally know that feeling, but that's where I'm at. I vaguely remember when the film Atonement came out. I had no desire to see it, and the extent of my memory is actually just that Kira Knightley was in the trailer. <laughs> She's hot. Oh did my Shag gosh. write this? Oh my! Wait, did he actually say that? Oh my gosh! Yeah, she's hot. I'm like, she's hot. No, no, no. It's she's hot. I think that's how Shag says it. Um, ultimately, I didn't enjoy the book and film like you two did. Uh, I don't think – I never actually saw the film. You saw, did you see Atonement? Yes. I. That's what – my origin story actually started with the film. Okay, I saw the okay. film before I read the book. Um, I, maybe I'll check the film out if I get the chance. Uh, I don't think there's any major reason why other than the general style. As Tom so correctly hit upon, the beginning is super slow and a real drudge to get through. It eventually picked up, but seems to lack a certain je ne sais quoi that is more appealing to me. When Bryony receives the editorial criticism for her short story, it attacks her flowery prose. This is editorial criticism that I, I feel is appropriate for McEwen's work itself. There was a lot of nothing, and personally, I felt it could do with a little more substance. Is the novel bad? No. Could I ever see myself recommending it? No. As much as I enjoyed reading and discovering the book, I was left unaroused. Whereas other Unaroused? Books... What a word phrase. <laughs> I'm just reading the email. Whereas other books chosen by Stella have left me annoyed or Here more likely go. inspired. You are the loose cannon after all. Oh that was gosh. not him. Um, I feel a sense of disinterest in atonement once completed. The amazing scene of the film of McAvoy on the beach aside, if I had to choose, I prefer the book over the film with the caveat that it could still have been much so much better. All this, of course, is my opinion that I recognize is in no way supposed to be definitive or anything other than my personal take. Also, I'm with Tom on Bryony being an unappealing and self-centered character that never grew on me. In her own way, she is just as terrible as the affluent white upper class society members that her family is supposed to represent. Perhaps this is enough negativity for now, and I'll leave it where it's at and instead look toward my next discovery. I know nothing of a doll's house and can't wait. Hopefully it'll be more inspiring. Your Scholastic Book Buddy. P.S. I am legitimately surprised that Atonement wasn't chosen as to tie in with hashtag me too. I'm certain 
it was. Stella never ceases to surprise me, even if accidentally. Your thoughts? I have, well, I have several thoughts about this guy I now call my nemesis. One thought would be... Trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So Donna I was talking to my status. mom about this character. I was like, get a load of this guy. And so I told her all about this. And I said, now I just want to pick books to spite him. Like terrible uh, books, terrible why picks. Do you put me through so that? just be aware. But in punishing Robert, I'm pretty sure I'll also be punishing Tom. So yeah. I'll have to rethink about that. Uh, no, I don't really. I mean, I, I feel like. I, I enjoy the novel, but I see the character criticisms absolutely. I mean, Bryony is not supposed to be a well-loved character because that's the whole point of it, you know, that she made this yeah. terrible mistake. And, yeah, I actually didn't choose it as a Me Too thing. I just realized as we were going through, I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, this is kind of close to the Me Too. Yeah. So, yeah. no, I, I don't have any thoughts except for Robert <laughs> being on my nemesis tree that I'm drawing right now. All right. Well, I guess I should set us up for next episode. Yes, or I should. Is that what you're saying? Are you trying to hit me? Maybe. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> yes, yeah, so next episode will be, when is that, spring? No, March? Uh, that'll drop in February. Oh, wow. So Tom is going to finally, finally recommend a romance novel. So Tom, tell us what romance novel you are recommending. Oh, I tried to choose the hottest Fabio. <gasps> Erotica? Oh yes. Erotica. No. <laughs> we're not doing we are not doing um really any well, there's romance in this book. And and a possible romance and things like that. Um I uh decided not to go seasonal for this, but instead oh. I actually stayed within the stayed within the science fiction genre. And uh, we are going to be reading one of the seminal, original works of science fiction. Oh, my. We are going to be reading Frankenstein. Oh, foo. Oh, I thought you were going to say Slaughterhouse-Five. No. No. We are reading Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. How come you keep number one that's not even close? Unless you ship Frankenstein as his, and his monster. Elizabeth. But, the, the, he's in love with I Frankenstein's Elizabeth. And, and, then, and then he wants... He wants Victor to create a mate for him. Mm, mm, okay. And well, and Victor refuses to do it. Mm -mm. And that leads to the monster killing. I believe it leads to the monster killing Elizabeth. I'm, you know, uh, oh from whatever. Oh my gosh, you're like spoiling this book already. <laughs> it's a 200 year old book. <laughs> Some people haven't read it. Tom, all I have to say is what, what, whose palms did you grease to get not only Halloween? Not only Christmas, but Valentine's Day. So I was doing the math in my head, uh -huh. and it was because we skipped a month in the summer that I ended up with Halloween and Christmas again. Uh, I don't remember we... having that option last year for myself. No, no, no. Okay, so. you. Oh, I see what you're in saying. In our first time yeah. around, I had Halloween and Christmas. Yeah. And had we not skipped July or, or July or August, whatever month we skipped when, during last summer, um, because uh, we were both very, very busy. We were also doing oh, Don Quixote. Yep. Um, that lined it up so that I got Halloween Christmas again. So if we do not skip a month this coming year. Uh, I'll have them. Maybe. I've got the per per perfect <laughs> Halloween one that you will not be happy about at all. You know, okay. I will say that there are seventh graders are reading Don Quixote. The Am whole I joking? Thing? No, I'm not. Uh, not the whole thing. It is a, an abridged version with 
images inside, like sure. like a very particular uh, type of yeah. I don't know. I've not. I kind of want to see. Maybe when I will over break, if I go and visit my department chair's family, I'll borrow his daughter, who's in seventh grade, and read it because I'd be interested to see what parts they take out and what they keep in. But I just thought that was funny. That hey, look! But the English teacher that is now on maternity leave hadn't even read it yet. Hadn't read Don Quixote yet, and I thought, yikes! I guess I could teach. Task. <laughs> I mean, I, oh I, sure, yeah. Like I said, I came to enjoy it as we were discussing it. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I came to enjoy it even more as we discussed it. Sure. It was a really great book to discuss, but it is a task to to read that yeah, entire book. You gotta have dedication. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we're we're doing it. We're closing out. We are. This episode. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Until now, I mean, we don't really have to say anything. It's all in the little bumper. So yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Just remember to follow us on Twitter at REQ Reading Cast. That's Rec Reading Cast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's basically it. So until next time, be sure. I hope that you do not get any knife tattoos. No, that would be that would mean that you are a very very dangerous person or have had to do something serious, very very serious. Yeah, to protect yourself, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you, and good night. And good night, yes, and good luck, as that man used to say. <laughs> good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.